What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G Podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is Now and Then. I'm Heather Cox Richardson. And I'm Joanne Freeman. Today we're going to be doing something a little different. We are recording this episode um, on the afternoon of Friday, June 24th, um, just a few hours after the announcement of the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which essentially overturned the constitutional right to abortion. And what we thought we would do today is Heather and I would have a conversation with each other, um, not planned, uh, certainly not scripted, but that really what we would do is engage with each other as historians, as American citizens, uh, and as women, and talk about how we are processing this moment at this time. It seemed to us as though this offered a unique opportunity for us to think historically in the moment and to share that kind of conversation with you. What are you thinking about? What am I thinking about? I was in the middle of doing a webcast when someone put uh, in chat that this had just happened and it silenced me. And I suppose because of the many levels of response I was having, I often jokingly refer to um, my multiple brains and I talk about my historian brain uh, and my citizen brain and my Joanne brain. Um, and I often will say, you know, historian brain is sort of standing back in the moment and looking at the historical significance and citizen brain is thinking on an immediate level, how does this affect me as an American citizen? And then Joanne brain is having the emotional reaction. And I would say I had some of all three, right? So um, certainly historian brain immediately focused on what the precedent was historically. And I, I will say actually here at the outset, as I make a reference to that, that it's worth noting, and we will be providing a link to an episode that we did on September 14th, 2021, which was called Abortion, Whose Choice?, which talked about abortion in a historical context. So although this is unscripted and we're really processing in the moment here, you will also have access and a link to this episode that we did a little bit earlier. So historian brain was thinking historically. Citizen brain was pretty alarmed 
Um, and I know, Heather, you and I are probably going to talk about the larger implications of this in combination with other things that are happening at this moment and what it suggests um, about being an American citizen and the direction that the United States is going. Joanne Brain was and is outraged and more upset than I can say because of the implications of this in a sweeping kind of a way and in a personal kind of a way. I won't go into that right now because I think we're going to chat here as historians, but suffice it to say, I think that many people listening are going to be sharing my feelings. Um, and I'm, in a sense, I'm sort of pushing them to the side at the moment so that, so that we can have a useful conversation. So it's worth pointing out that this is the first time in our history that a majority of Americans have lost a constitutional right. That's a really big deal. We have certainly in the past had Supreme Court decisions that did not affirm a right that people thought they had. So, for example, the Dred Scott decision of 1857, which did say that African-Americans were not citizens, that was something that was on the table, but they had not yet been legally called citizens by the federal government. This is the first time we have had a right for 50 years and had it taken away. And to me, that is simply... Um, the capstone of where our government has been going for the last 40 years. So the loss that I see in Roe is simply devastating to women and to their partners for the degree to which it circumscribes their lives. I mean, the whole idea behind the, uh, the, movement to make the right to abortion a decision between a woman and her doctor was because of the fact there was a public health crisis in the 1950s when doctors estimated between a half a million and two million illegal abortions happened every year. And I sort of was thinking today, it's sort of like the anti-vaxxers going, you know, we don't need vaccines against whooping cough because nobody gets it anymore. And they stop taking them. And then all of a sudden, babies start dying of whooping cough again. And I think people are not prepared for what that's going to look like. And everything we can talk about that goes with that but more than that, this decision is in keeping with the decisions that this particular Supreme Court, which has been packed by Donald Trump with three theocratic judges, and not even, they're not conservative, they're radical uh, theocrats, to institute in this country their version, which is a minority view of what society should look like. So just yesterday, the Supreme Court overturned a state law, and that law would have restricted people's ability to carry guns outside of their homes. And yet, you know, the whole idea that they have been arguing um, for overturning Roe v. Wade is that there is no federal defense of that constitutional right, so states should decide it. Well, yesterday, the states had decided to regulate guns, and they're like, no, you can't do that. And if you read um, Thomas's decision today, he says, you know, there was never any right to abortion in early America. And of course, that's a completely ahistorical. And yet, in yesterday's decision about um, regulations of guns, the the they held pretty much the opposite, that there was always a constitutional right for everybody to have guns under every circumstance, which is, again, completely ahistorical. So it involves us as historians in a sense that they are inventing a new history to create a modern world that reflects their ideology, which is just radical. And so to me, I'm, I'm really sort of stunned. No, I am, feel the same way. It's, it's, for one thing, it's history as a, as a cudgel and a very carefully crafted lens um, to be able to make points 
that otherwise it's difficult to sustain, which is why it becomes so important to insist that things did or didn't happen in the past, because historical precedent, invented historical precedent, stands in for other things that can support these decisions that are being made. So, and this is, you know, we we live in a moment when, um, in one way or another, we can talk about uh the creation of histories of the past uh, that are conveniently insisting on things or eliminating things uh, in a dramatic and drastic way uh, to score points. History is always political, but we're seeing it used in a deliberate way in the recent past. Um, Again, along these lines, this isn't new, but it's here in a Supreme Court decision being used for a very explicit purpose. Um, So I, I think that's part of what we're seeing, but I totally agree with you. And I in conjunction with the um, decision yesterday on guns, um, it, in addition to this decision being a slap in the face, it absolutely, I don't even want to say signals because that's not a strong enough word. It advertises the fact that this is part of a vision of what America should be. And, you know, in um, Justice Alito's 79-page opinion, he said that, Um, abortion, quote, presents a profound moral issue on which Americans hold sharply conflicting views. Um, He said that Roe, the original decision, was egregiously wrong and deeply damaging and thus should not be allowed to stand and that the issue should thus, quote, return to the people's representatives. So it is a moral issue. It's, it's, that is the way in which it was being discussed in this decision. It's a moral issue that needs to be acted on, and that's underlying this decision in a way, again, as you suggested, Heather, talks about a much larger vision of society. But one of the points that you and I were discussing right before we plunged into this um, is what does it say about the view of American society overall? And I said, is it, are they thinking about society? Are they thinking about a larger society, or are they thinking about an agenda um, that they want to promote about what they want the United States to be like that isn't necessarily focused on individuals in society and their place and health in society. Well, I keep coming back to the fact that this particular court and the the, the current day Republican Party, which is not a conservative party, it has become a group of radical extremists, which was not the Republican Party's history. So that's just a distinction I want to make. But that they are focused constantly on the concept of throwing all decisions back to the states, at least on the surface level. And that is, of course, exactly what the enslavers wanted to do before the Civil War. They literally said on the floor of the Senate, uh, James Henry Hammond in 1858 said, you know, we don't care if the entire country wants to do something. They can't because the Constitution says only the states can do anything. So if you want roads across the Cumberland Gap or the harbors cleared out or regulations of enslavement, you are out of luck because everything happens in the states. And that's why they wanted everything to happen in the states is because it's very easy to buy up a state legislature or to hem in voting in such a way in the states that you get the result that you want. And so 
when you look at the attempt of the modern-day Republican Party from at least 1960 on with Goldwater's conscience of a conservative, that effort to push everything away from the federal government, which is regulating business and uh, protecting a basic social safety net and advancing civil rights and promoting infrastructure, their attempt to get away from that and throw everything back to the states is an attempt to make sure that there is a society which a very few people can control. So you have that, but then to turn around just as the enslavers did in the 1850s and say, well, everything has to be in the States. Oh, except the things we want. And those things we want, we will root in some false sense of the Constitution and say, oh, look, this is protected by the Constitution, the right to bear arms anywhere, but things we don't like is not protected by the Constitution. And that echo of the 1850s and the ideology of the enslavers in the 1850s with their hierarchical society, um, I think that reality, which has descended on us in 2022, is even more shocking to me than the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And that I wanted to go right along those lines and simply add the fact that that strategy of um, the slaveholders wanting to throw everything back to the states because they could assume, again, on a state level, there could be more control. They would have um, a much greater ability to make things happen the way that they wanted them to happen. And this is being said by people, the South had a far outsized power in the national government for many decades before this point. But that strategy, the strategy of throwing things back to the states and the strategy of being willing to preach, if not deploy violence, those are strategies that you use when you know that the demographics on a national level are against you. That's what you do when you know essentially that national democratic processes, right, that national elections, a national legislature might not go your way. And if you are, for example, a slaveholder in the 1850s or representing slaveholders in the 1850s, far safer and far better to make everything local than to risk what might happen on a national level. So absolutely, what you see in the 1850s is the strategy of trying to push things to a more controllable stage joined with the ability and increasing um, willingness to talk about violence as a way to impose will. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. 
What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Property Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, folks, we are all focused on the overturning of Roe v. Wade this week. But we also want to highlight an important event that's ahead that deals with another crucial constitutional question, also in the news, the role of guns and the Second Amendment. On Thursday, July 7th, at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Time, we'll be joined by our friend Carol Anderson. She's the Charles Howard Candler Professor of African American Studies at Emory University. Carol is also the author of The Second, Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. We'll talk about the recent Supreme Court decision that overturned New York's gun regulations. We'll also talk about the scourge of mass shootings, the historical fault lines of gun ownership, and the racist vigilantism that brought us to this point. You can tune into the program on any of CAFE's social media platforms and on Heather's Facebook. To get a list of links and updates, register for the program at cafe.com. We'll also put the registration URL in our show notes for this episode. We hope you can join us. So here's a question, though. Um, I mean, in both cases, what we're seeing is minority rule. I mean, we just can't say anything else. And and I think really um, the what we have heard in the last two days, because yesterday was the fifth hearing of the House Select Committee um, to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. And it was very, very clear that not only the uh, then-President Donald Trump and some of his lackeys wanted to destroy democracy, that a number of Congress people were willing to go along with that. I mean, it was pretty clear that they were they were very aware that Democrat Joe Biden had won the popular vote by about 7 million votes, and he had won handily in the Electoral College, and they didn't care. They were willing to overturn it, which, you know, I was out kayaking last night, and I thought, you know, I always try and be so careful about the way I talk about people's motives and attributing things to them, but I don't think you can any longer look at the Republican Party and say they believe in democracy. And that's bonkers. That's a shocking thing to, right, I was going to say, that's bonkers. shocking to be able to to say that about the other major quote-unquote party, because we could talk about that word too, in American history and in the United States now. Because I, I think, so, you know, we don't necessarily have to talk about the hearings now, and we might do that in another conversation, but certainly that's one of the clear things that comes out of those hearings is just the repeated, consistent creative ways in which a small group of people were trying to get past, push over, overrule, um, in one way or another, get past democratic processes again and again and again and again. So everything that we see in that effort by everyone that we see involved in it is explicitly anti-democratic. People come forward and say that's not legal, that's not part of our constitutional process, and that's dismissed. So yeah, you know, I mean, democracy, we can come back to this, but but the question of what democracy is and, and the different rights that people have in a democratic mode of governance, 
That's a question at play here. But this absolutely demands the next question. And that is that how did a majority of Americans in either period, but but especially now, permit a radical minority to take over the machinery of our government? Like, were we just asleep at the wheel? What do you think? That's a really interesting question. I mean, you know, um, looking back at the 1850s in a general kind of a way, what you see is, I don't want to say asleep at the wheel, but you see a growing awareness in the years leading up to the Civil War on a national level among the public about the degree to which what had been perceived as polarization was actually more than that. So polarization sounds like, you know, opinions that are different and clashing. Beyond polarization, you have people willing to cross lines that shouldn't be crossed. And it certainly in the research that I did on Congress and the response to what was going on in Congress, it's the late 1850s where Americans are beginning to perceive that people on the side that they don't like appear to be willing to actually go places they don't want them to go, as opposed to spouting rhetoric and talking to their constituents in a way that people have been able to dismiss as mere politics. But in the 1850s, and I think in the present, it was one-sided. I mean, the, the people really pushing the envelope in the 1850s were the enslavers, were the Southern Democrats who were dominating the South, for sure. And through that, they dominated the federal government, but they didn't have the numbers. And the, certainly the Whigs weren't causing trouble. No, no, no. And it's, I'm, I'm not even necessarily talking about trouble, but one of the things that certainly caused a big response in that, those last years before the Civil War was the Republican Party, right? So, so the South is pushing envelopes and crossing lines. The Republican Party stepping forward and saying, we are a Northern anti-slavery party. They're not crossing lines about legality. Um, or society, but by their being present, that certainly forced the issue. Well, they yeah, it forced the issue because they finally stood up and said, no, you guys are breaking the Constitution and you're breaking the laws. And that was interpreted as, how dare you? But, you know, it's a really dramatic moment after um, your guy, what's his name, beats up Charles Sumner on the floor of the my Senate. My guy. Don't give me Preston it? Brooks. Preston Brooks. <laughs> He's um, not he my beats guy. Up, he beats up Sumner on the floor of the Senate. And you know, it was a really big moment when Anson Burlingame, who was a member of the House of Representatives from Massachusetts, stands up in the House and he says, cut it out. We will fight you. And it was the first time somebody said, you know, yeah, we're not going to give any more ground. We're actually, we are actually willing to fight. And everybody's like, oh, he said he'd fight. Right. The Republican Party advertised itself as the party that was going to fight the slave power. Well, after years of the slave power doing whatever the Precisely. hell it wanted. Well, that was right, which is why the Republican Party, among other things, rose so quickly, was it tapped into that, you know, desire. Finally, there is a North, there is a North that is willing to fight. I mean, it's, you know, and you can see the impact of that um, in response to the caning of Sumner. You have throughout the North meetings that were known as, quote, indignation meetings, which I love. <laughs> beat up, beat up Sumner meetings. Right, well, well, no, they were, they were, they were indignation at him being beaten right in the North. They were, they were people getting together to be indignant about what happened, but they were meetings grounded on the emotional response to what had just happened in Congress. So the reason that I think it's important to think about how this happened, and I think actually, um, the, the rise of the 
Southern Democrats in the 1850s was in part because Northerners were looking a different direction, in part because um, they they knew they were a majority, they were comfortable with where the future was going, and in part because um, they were polite. You know, they didn't want to say, you guys are, it. you know, they didn't want to fight back. They wanted to say, we'll just get along. Let me ask you along those lines, because I would say absolutely part of it is because they were going to be polite, but I would say even more than that, and I think this is something that you see today, they also were throughout between 1830 and 1860, they were the people who were absolutely um, loyal to laws and procedures, to processes and procedures, to the way things were supposed to operate. So Southerners, particularly Southern slaveholders, would violate laws left and right or procedures or processes in Congress. And it w- they always, in a sense, relied on Northerners to be the people who said, well, no, no, let's stick with the rules. And there was that kind of a balanced imbalance in the way that Congress worked. And in a sense, we're in a similar moment today where we have one party that is consistently making up its own rules, you know, sort of violating precedents in Congress. And there are precedents that are important because you know, Congress is about interaction and relating between people. So those kinds of norms and precedents matter. There's one side that's just violating them. And there's another side, you know, the Democrats are sort of being seen as the guardians. Like, oh, well, we, we're sticking with procedures. And I'm not arguing that Democrats should say, well, the heck with procedures and norms. Let's sort of go in and fight the same way. But that's the imbalance that we're looking at right now. Well, the procedures and norms really matter because if you lose them, you lose the whole game. Then you've just got chaos, and that's that dictates the rise of a strong man almost always. So um, that's one of the reasons I think you and I are both very into to procedures um, is to prevent that. But it, I pushed you on that a little bit because it has been a surprise to me for a while that there hasn't been a bigger American pushback against the extremes of the current day Republican Party. And it's interesting to me as a historian that these hearings, and I I know you don't want to belabor the hearings, but these hearings are exposing so clearly the attempt to destroy our democracy. Um, I mean, they're only calling Republican witnesses with one exception. They're laying out a very clear story. They have the documents. They've got the receipts. I mean, and it's just every time you think you know everything and you can't possibly learn learn anything new, your jaw drops and you think, oh, my God, I knew it was bad. I didn't know it was this bad. That is coming at the exact same time, really quite by accident, as the Supreme Court, which has been packed by that same president who was willing to overthrow our democracy, to put forward these decisions that are not only radical in terms of our constitutional system, but also are seemingly pushing a theocracy. So, for example, we didn't mention the decision about um, state monies and religious schools uh, coming out of Maine. I don't even know how many weeks ago now, but very recently. Not even that many, yeah. Yeah, in which the Supreme Court decided that the the state could not discriminate against religious schools when it put tax money into um, educating children. And that that's, you know, as the dissent said, that just not only tore down the wall between uh, church and state, it actually suggested that not funding religious schools was going to be unconstitutional. And, um, and that, I- I'm wondering if we are finally at an 
1850s moment where ordinary Americans who just weren't paying attention the same way people weren't paying attention in the 1850s go, now hang on just a minute here. Let me add to that because I think that I'm traveling on that same road with you. And I think something that joins this string of Supreme Court decisions and the hearings and that I think is jarring people in a way they haven't been jarred before is the way in which again and again and again they're showing how drastic, dramatic, seemingly unthinkable change can happen. And I've talked many, many times about how I think that ideas about American exceptionalism have been blinding Americans to what's happening right in front of them, particularly in recent years when there has been dramatic, seemingly authoritarian politics going on around us, some some things being overthrown, processes, procedures, norms, uh, and greater than that, <laughs> laws and standards, um, and that Americans... Um, which, and this is longstanding, right, have a sense that the United States is special, meaning it's different from other countries and the things that happen to other countries won't happen to here, here and that no matter what happens here, we'll be okay in the end because we're the United States and it will all be okay. And that's a numbing kind of way of thinking about things. And if you believe that, and that can be, that can feel like patriotism and faith in the United States, right? That if you believe that, that's a good thing to think. And if you believe that, you will have your eyes closed to the fact that the United States is not immune to dramatic, seemingly um, unimaginable change, that, that it is possible for things to happen that will change the United States in seemingly unthinkable ways. And you have to get past the idea that we're exceptional, that that they're impossible. And I think one of the things that, and you're right, sort of almost coincidentally, the Supreme Court decisions and the hearings together, what they're doing is showing the degree to which that kind of dramatic change, that kind of, oh, they actually almost really did overturn the election. Oh, look at these sort of fundamental things, religion, guns, and abortion, right, can be acted on in a dramatic way And there you are, right? Here we are in the moment. Those things just happened. And now we have to grapple with the legacy of that. I think that fact potentially, maybe, will wake up some Americans to the fact that it's it's way past the time to be sleeping, right? It's way past the time to assume that, well, this is the phase we're in and we'll move into another phase and everything will be fine again. We're, We're far past that point in the river. We're at a point where... It's important that everybody be awake and alert and and really be deciding how they want to act in this moment, how they want to join with others who agree with them to find ways to organize and work towards instituting change that represents what they actually do believe the United States should be. This is a moment not to sleep, but to be really awake. Um, and, you know, I was saying this morning during my webcast that um, I said to the people who were with me, okay, so today is a day when we're going to be upset. Um, And we're going to grapple with our personal response to the constitutional, legal, political, and personal repercussions of what's going on now. After today, we need to think about the long view and what we do to work together to push for change. We don't despair at this moment. We acknowledge This is a sign of a larger thing that's going on in American society, and people need to realize that and come together to discuss that, as you do in a democracy, and figure out how to organize and protest and act as democracies 
allow. I agree with that. I think it's important to reiterate that while this is where I started, while this is a huge deal for American women and their partners, it is absolutely a signal that American democracy is not even just on the ropes, but is going down. And that, um, I mean, any study will tell you that when when a society loses reproductive choice, that is a, a, a huge red flag for the rise of a strong man um, and the rise of democratic backsliding. And taken together with the other decisions that the Supreme Court has handed down, one of the things that jumps out to me is that it, it the Supreme Court no longer represents the American people, and nor does the Senate. And, you know, we're increasingly at a place where we are being ruled by a minority, and it's very difficult to see a way out of that peacefully without absolutely overwhelming engagement on the part of Americans and a recognition that people pushing back are not some crazy leftist communists or whatever it was that Mo Brooks was calling them last night, Um, but they're people who really would like to be, as Abraham Lincoln said, exceedingly conservative because they want to stand on the Declaration of Independence and the idea that we are in fact all created equal and have a right to consent to the government under which we live. And that is not radicalism. That is, you know, fundamental conservatism. That's absolutely true. And and I think we're both on the same page here in which we're saying now is a moment to recognize where we are headed, what this represents, the, the ways in which democracy is not just endangered, it's slipping. And that's a big part of what we have seen in this decision today. And that we need to act in defense of democracy, of the constitution, of constitutional law, of the rule of law. None of those things, as you just put it, none of those things are radical. None of those things are leftist. Those are fundamentally American democratic things. They are the foundations of who we are as a nation. And we need to Understand that, accept that, decide what that means, and come together to defend them, to protest, to act in some way that makes it clear that we're aware of what's happening and we're going to push back. And in terms of things changing very quickly, it is worth pointing out that there are moments in our history, in the 1850s, for example, in the 1890s, in the 1920s, when it really looked like you know the curtain was closing on American democracy. And in each of those instances, the American people woke up and said, no, we really care about these things. So as dark as it looks right now, there is hope. There is hope. And that. so this is one other point I want to make too. It's tempting, and I, I've been watching this sort of edge its way around the margins of the hearings, it's tempting to look to individuals as heroes who will save us, right? And and you can look at Cheney and say, look at her standing up against her party. That's heroic. Um, Or look at these people testifying, although I actually will say that um, Shea Moss, Ruby Freeman, actually were heroes uh, in standing up and doing what they did. But, But my larger point here is it's tempting to look for heroes in this moment to save us. You know, we were doing the same thing with the Mueller report. And this is an operation that will only succeed with we. This is a we operation. The only way out of this is as an us. There is no single individual who can save us. And if we look towards that 
we disempower ourselves. This is a moment when we need to come together and understand and discuss what we believe in and put our feet into that discussion, put our feet into this action and, and move and push for what we believe in. That's it for this episode of Now and Then. If you like what we do, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. Your hosts are Joanne Freeman and Heather Cox Richardson. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producer is David Kurlander. The audio producer is Matthew Billy. The Now and Then theme music was composed by Nat Wiener. The CAFE team is Adam Waller, David Tattashore, Sam Ozerstaten, Noah Azalai, and Jake Kaplan. Now and Then is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Property Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Property Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.